There's a story I heard recently about a boy who had a pet lizard. And the lizard was the boy's first pet, and he loved it as much as anything. He loved it so much that he went out of his way to care for it. He even had his mom get online to uh, get some tips on the Internet on how to care for lizards. And he tried his best day and night to do just that. Like it is with many lizards, after several months, his eventually contracted a disease that turned out to be fatal. The boy was devastated. His first pet had died in a matter of months. And his dad felt so bad for the boy that he decided to work with his son to give this lizard a proper burial. So they got a shoebox, and they decorated it up, and they placed the lizard in it. And the dad and the son went out in the backyard, and they dug a hole to bury him. Well, while they were digging, the boy began to cry uncontrollably. And as the dad tried to console him, the boy yelled out, Dad, this is not going to do any good. Even if we plant him, I seriously doubt he's going to grow again. You see, though the boy was young and a bit naive, one worldly message that the boy had received from his few short years on this planet is that death is permanent. Death is fixed. It is unalterable. The boy was convinced that he was never going to see his poor lizard again, no matter what he did. That's a pretty mature perspective for a young boy to have, isn't it? And this is how many view life in general in our world today, especially when you're talking about human life. Many believe that death is permanent for people in the same way it is for all living things, and they never move beyond this way of thinking. Dr. William Provine, a professor at Cornell University, has gone to great lengths to disprove the existence of God. He does not believe God exists and therefore does not believe there's any deep meaning in human life. He once summed up life in this way. Look up on the screen. Look what he said. He said, we live, we die, and we're gone. We're absolutely gone when we die. It's pretty dim, isn't it? If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. We are continuing this morning through this wonderful chapter on the resurrection. And today we're going to be looking at verses 35 through 49. For the past few weeks, we've talked about the fact that there were a group of Christians at Corinth who reasoned in this way when it came to the body. They believed that death was permanent for the body. Now, they believed in Christ's resurrection from the dead, and they believed in some sort of future existence with them, yet they believed what happened to Christ was unrelated to them. They denied the future physical bodily resurrection of the godly. Why? Well, like I explained to you a couple of weeks ago, the Corinthians had once again 
allowed the outside unbelieving world to influence the goings-on in the church. This was a, a reoccurring problem for the Corinthians, right? There was a group of believers in the church who apparently had adopted the Greek philosophy known as philosophical dualism. And remember, I, I explained to you that this just this teaching simply meant that all it simply taught that all matter is evil and that everything of the soul is good. That's what many of the Greeks believed. They taught that one's body is bad, but one's spirit is good. And because this was their worldview, they believed that when one died, their evil material body rotted away while their good and clean spirit remained. And the Corinthians had been greatly influenced by this pagan belief, which is why they were questioning their future bodily resurrection. So in chapter 15, Paul, knowing this is where they are, doctrinally makes a detailed and thorough argument in favor of the physical and bodily resurrection of Christ and of his people. For the past two weeks, we have seen Paul building this argument by first discussing the resurrection of Jesus. In verses 1 through 11, he gives evidence for Jesus' resurrection, and in verses 12 through 34, he explains the importance of it. Now, why does he do that? They already believe this to be true about Jesus. Why harp on this point? Here's why. Because Paul knew if they would truly think on and consider the evidence and the importance of Jesus' physical and bodily resurrection, then they would begin to see the likelihood of their own. That's why he says what he does in 1 Corinthians 15, 12, when he says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Paul shows his readers in the first half of 1 Corinthians 15 that there is this seamless connection of Christ and the future resurrection of believers on the final day. So that's why Paul opens this argument by discussing the resurrection of Christ. In today's passage, however, he shifts gears a bit. Today, we are going to get into the heart of the argument. In this passage, Paul is going to address the real issue, the issue of the future resurrection of the godly. But he does so in a very unique way. Instead of laying out all the evidence all the reasons why this doctrine is true. Instead, he gives us a detailed description of what that future resurrection is going to be like. Now, why does he take this approach? If they don't believe in it, what's the importance of explaining what it's going to be like? Here's the reason why. Because the text implies that the Corinthians already knew what Paul believed when it came to the doctrine of the resurrection. Remember I told you in the second half of this book, the book of 1 Corinthians, 
Paul, for the most part, is just addressing questions that were was sent to him by the Christians at Corinth. And they asked him a wide range of questions, didn't they? They asked him questions about relationships, questions about Christian liberty, questions about the role between men and women in the church and, and outside the church and about spiritual gifts. And they had apparently sent him a question or two about the resurrection. And the questions they sent to Paul seemed to be loaded questions. The Corinthians apparently had made it known to Paul that they were already decided on this issue. Their mentality was, we're going to hear what you have to say, Paul, but our minds are pretty much already made up on the matter. Verse 35, Paul begins this section by saying, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Notice the quotations here. Apparently, Paul had been asked this question by a few in Corinth. And his harsh response in verse 36 implies that when it was asked, it was asked with a sarcastic skepticism rather than honest uncertainty. Apparently, there were some asking sort of jokingly, all right, Paul, you believe in a future physical bodily resurrection of the dead? Tell us, how exactly can that happen? They were asking like sarcastic skeptics rather than honest doubters. They were like, what future use do we have with a rotting and stinking and decaying corpse? We've seen the body waste away. We know it's not eternal. They thought it ridiculous. Many of them were probably thinking, man, you know, Paul is sharp in many ways, but he is way off his rocker on this one. Notice Paul's answer, though, in verse 36. He says, you foolish person. You fools. Why so harsh? Paul knew. They were mockingly asking him these questions, probably laughing as they wrote it. And he says, you fools. You think you're so smart, but you don't understand the first thing about the resurrection. Because they didn't, Paul follows by explaining to them what the resurrection is going to be like so they'll have a better understanding of it and hopefully embrace it. First, he says, if you knew anything about the resurrection, you would know that your future body will be unique and remarkable. Look at the end of verse 36 and verse 37. Paul says... What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. Now, if you read this passage this past week, or even just now, you're probably thinking to yourself, what on earth is Paul talking about here? What's he talking about? I mean, he, he mentions sowing, and he mentions bearing kernels and wheat. What's he talking about? Well... Remember that in this passage, Paul is not so much giving an argument for the bodily resurrection of the godly as much as he is trying to describe it. So here he is describing it using an illustration. And this illustration is as clear as any that Paul gives. 
He's basically saying this, look, you should have no more trouble understanding the resurrection than you understand than you have understanding the concept of harvest. He says, when you go out and you sow a seed, it first has to go down into the ground and die before it lives. The seed must die and decompose before it rises again. And when it rises again, it is raised in a different form with hints of the same, yet unique. He says the same is true of the future bodily resurrection of the godly. And believers, this holds true for us today as well. Now again, we have an example of this, don't we? We can look to Jesus. I believe that Jesus' resurrected body was, was somewhat different from the one before his death. It was in many ways similar, yet it was unique. And I, I know there are different opinions on this, and, and the text doesn't tell us for sure, but I believe that that's the reason why many people had a difficult time recognizing him until he revealed that he was Jesus and then they saw him as he was before. He was similar in that he still functioned like we do. He sat with people, he talked with them, he ate with them, he had scars from his former earthly existence, yet he was unique. He was unique. So there's a sense in which he was similar, yet he was clearly unique and more glorious. Christ, and Paul says that will be true of us, believers. He explains to us that this body that we have now will age and will one day go into the grave and decompose. But he tells us that there is coming a day when we will burst forth from the grave in a physical and bodily sense and will exist in a, in a similar yet unique and more glorious way. Verse 38, Paul says, But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Now, here Paul is making an important yet basic point. He assures the the Corinthians who will probably take what he's just said in verses 36 and 37 and just talk it to death. He assures them that this entire process is in God's hands. You know, at first they thought the concept of a resurrected body that, that is rotting and decaying. They thought it was ridiculous. They thought, how exactly does that work? And after going into some explanation here, Paul imagines that there will be some more questions come up now. Questions like, well, how will we be different? Will he renew the old or will he make us new from scratch? Paul is anticipating these types of questions and so he assures them here that this process is in God's hands. It will be accomplished by him. It is a body that God will give. Therefore, let him worry about the details. It's in his hands. Verses 39 through 41, Paul says, For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. Wow, what a, what a passage we have here. 
Many of the Corinthians were wondering how this resurrection was going to be possible and they were now probably wondering how they could possibly have a different body. In this incredible passage that I just read, Paul, Paul shows them the creativity of our God. He shows the Corinthians that they need to have a bigger view of him. He says God has made all kinds of bodies, celestial bodies, terrestrial bodies, heavenly bodies, earthly bodies, human bodies, animal bodies, bodies made for the air, bodies made for the land, bodies made for the sea. Paul says, don't you dare limit God. He's God. And he can give anybody, any body that pleases him. When Ava was first learning how to draw, she would uh, draw the same thing every time. And it was a stick man, sort of. Here's a picture of it up on the screen, and that is an original. She actually drew that, all right? It's from Ava. And uh, the eyes might be a little bit bigger at times, and stature a little bit taller, maybe a little bit longer legs, but for the most part, she would just draw this guy. Pages upon pages of this guy. She was limited in what she could do. Not true of our God. He does not operate on an assembly line. He is not stuck with any old model. In verses 40 through 41, Paul continues to show the creativity of God by describing the uniqueness of earthly bodies like mountains and canyons and oceans and heavenly bodies like the sun and the moon and the stars. He explains how they are all different and uniquely remarkable. God has limitless capabilities. He can do anything that pleases Him. There are no limits there. Paul goes on in verse 42 to say this, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. Paul's point is that God has made you and me unique and extraordinary and will one day raise us up to a different kind, a better kind of remarkable. I mean, look around this room right now at one another. Just look at each other. Behold the uniqueness and the creativity of our God. Am I right? Yeah. And know that he's not done. Believers, there is a future transformation of you that will be unique. And it'll be unique to you. Paul is telling these guys at Corinth, he said, if you knew anything about the resurrection, you would know that that your future body will be unique and remarkable. Second, Paul says, if you guys knew anything about the resurrection, you would, you would know that your future body will be new and improved. Look at the second half of verse 42 and verse 43. Paul says, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Let's stop there for a moment. Notice the contrast that Paul uses here. Sown perishable, raised imperishable. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. First, Paul makes the point that our present bodies are falling apart. Some of you realize this more than others, right? 
Yeah. For some of you, you realize that your body can't do what it once did. And for those of the rest of you in here, you'll find out soon enough, right? All right, older people? Yeah. Truth is, our body from birth begins the process of aging and decay. And it will one day die. Believers, there is coming a day when our bodies are going to take a dirt nap. They are. But Paul says, though that happens, there is coming a day when God is going to raise us up in an imperishable and eternal state. He says, what is buried in dishonor is raised in glory. Many of you know this already, but when God created man, he made himself visible through him. He created both of them. Male and female in his image, but that image has been marred and disfigured by sin. Though God's image in man has been tainted, he tells us in his word that if we will trust in Christ alone for our salvation, there is coming a day when our bodies are going to come out of the grave in glory. What a day that'll be. He says, sown in weakness, raised in power. We're reminded of our weaknesses daily, aren't we? We are victimized by everything around us. For example, the environment in which we live. We are victimized by our own environment. We have seasons of sickness, which is determined by the world around us. We have allergy seasons and cold seasons and flu seasons. We are victimized by the things we eat the people we're around, the stresses from our job. We are a weak people. Yet Paul says we'll be raised in power. The limitations that we have today will be non-existent in the life to come. Scripture is clear that God is going to one day restore things back to the way they were, and this includes our bodies. Our future bodies will be new and improved. They will be eternal and magnificent and powerful. Well, Paul's not finished. Look at verse 44. Another point, he says, It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Again, he is showing us what the grave truly reveals about our bodies. He has has already explained to us that that the grave shows our bodies to be perishable and dishonorable and weak. And here in verse 44, Paul shows us that the grave reveals that we are natural. This body that you have currently is suited for this life and this life only. Yet our spiritual bodies that God will raise up in the last days will be suited for the next life, for the new world. As well adapted as our bodies are for this life, even more so will our future new and improved bodies be suited for the next life. In that day, our our new bodies will fit in to a new kind of life, a new level of life, a new dimension of life, a new dimension of existence that is beyond anything we've ever experienced. Now, we don't know the ins and outs what all that entails, but we know it's going to be incredible. Verses 45 through 47, Paul ends this passage by illustrating this point. 
He says, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Here's Paul's point here. First, he explains that when Adam was born, he was given a natural body. Now, though he was without sin, he was not yet glorified. He was in a trial state. The body that he had was fashioned for this world. It was natural. It was of the dust. It was earthy. And when he sinned against God, he brought on all these other limitations as well that we discussed in verses 42 through 43 that come in this life as a result of the fall. But notice what Paul says in the second half of each of these verses. He makes a contrast between Adam and Jesus. He says, the Adam, however, became a life-giving spirit. The second man is from heaven. He says, though the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam, which is a reference to Christ, became a life-giving spirit. His point here is that whereas Adam was created with the natural body, Jesus was raised with the spiritual one, you see? Let's keep breaking this down. He says the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Adam was made from the dust on the ground, but Jesus did not have his beginnings here on earth. He has eternally existed and descended from heaven. Now there was a time when he took on flesh and he dwelt among us and became a man, but Christ has eternally existed as God with the Father. He is the eternal Son of God. So Adam is tied to the earth. Christ is tied to heaven. Look at verse 48 and 49. This is so good. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. His point, simple. What is true of Adam is true of us. Remember, we are in Adam, right? By birth. Therefore, what Adam had, we have. He was a man of dust, so are we. He was natural, so are we. He was perishable and weak, so are we. But though that's the case, get this, believers. What's true of Christ is true of us as well. Though we are in Adam by birth, if you are trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, believers, you are in Christ by faith. Therefore, we are not only of the dust, believers, but we are of heaven because of our connection with the Lord. Because of our connection to and relationship with Christ, we have ties to heaven. But not only that, verse 49, we are guaranteed a future existence like Christ's, a future body like His, one that is imperishable and heavenly and honorable and powerful and glorious. So in Adam, we are earthy. 
have a natural body, but in Christ we are heavenly, have a spiritual body. Believers, be honest, how, how great is that? That's the kind of body we're going to have, a new and improved, imperishable and pure body just like our Lord's. We need to live with that truth in mind. You know, we're so attached to our present bodies, aren't we? Everywhere you turn, see commercials and ads in the paper and in the magazines on how to improve your body. There are pills you can take, creams you can use, surgeries you can have, foods you can eat, exercises you can do to improve the look and state of this body. And know that I'm not saying that you shouldn't exercise and eat right, okay? You should. But the point I'm making is this. We are so attached to this body and put all of our time and effort into looking like we once did instead of living with the future in mind and striving to become more like we are going to be in Christ. That needs to be our pursuit, believers. We are to live this day and each day after with that day in mind. We are to pursue godliness. We are to chase after what we will be in Christ and long for that day when we will be raised to be like Him and to live with Him for all eternity. Pray that if you did not have it already that you leave here today with this perspective, with this outlook on life. Maybe you're here this morning and you do not yet have this hope because you're still connected with the earthly man, the man from dust, Adam, rather than being connected with the heavenly man, the man from above, Jesus. I pray if this is you, that your allegiances change this morning. Listen, Jesus lived, died, and was raised so that you and I could do likewise. You can possess this hope of being raised to be like Him and to live with Him for all eternity if you would make this decision to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you have not, I pray you would this morning.